Hey there, Sake On Air listeners. We've got great news. The Sake Future Summit is coming back. On both January 7th and 14th, the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association is once again hosting a series of presentations and panel discussions featuring a range of inspiring individuals that are working hard to chart an exciting path for the future of sake in Japan and across the globe. This year's summit will be taking place from 6 to 11 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, which will be 3 to 8 p.m. Pacific Time on Saturday, January 7th, as well as Saturday, January 14th. For viewers in Japan, that'll be 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. on both Sunday the 8th and the 15th. Viewers are encouraged to tune in throughout the broadcast to share questions and comments during the live and pre-recorded sessions. For those located in less than accommodating time zones, there will be a rebroadcast of both days' programming to be scheduled as well. We'll be sure to keep you updated on details here at Sake on Air as they materialize, but also be sure to follow the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to their official YouTube channel for future updates and viewing as well. Mark your calendars, prepare some sake and shochu, and join us for the Sake Future Summit this January. Now, on with the show. The people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history of it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sake on Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue surrounding Japan's iconic beverages, sake and shochu, and of course, awamori. As always, uh, actually not as always on this occasion, uh, we'd normally be recording from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in the heart of Tokyo, uh, but uh, circumstances mean that we're actually recording this uh, online, uh, mainly because uh, our guest today is actually not uh, based in Japan. And of course, as always, um, this show is made possible with the generous support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. My name is Chris Hughes, and I'm joined today by one of your other regular hosts here on the show, Sebastian Lemoine. Sebastian! How are you doing? Good evening, Chris. Nice to be nice to be back. Nice to be back on the show. Yeah, um, we we uh, we met just the other day, right, at a sake festival in Tokyo. That's right. I mean, the last few weeks seems to have been quite busy for for you in particular, just watching everything that you uh, published about. But yeah. yeah, I mean, the reality is that for the first time in about three years, we had uh, a number of sake events taking place. Uh, live or uh, um, where we could actually taste with crowds plus the fact that borders have been reopening and all uh, our sake friends <laughs> have been coming from across the world to Tokyo makes um, I mean this makes life uh, or in your life in particular quite busy it seems yeah, well, you know, it, it's sort of, it, as you know, I'm sure it kind of happened, and I'm sure it's the same for you as well. It, it, it kind of happens in spots. It's not sort of regular, regular, but uh, yeah, I'm enjoying a bit of a busy period. And it was so nice to go around tasting various sake with you at the event. Um, and I think we had a good time. And I tasted a number of uh, namazaki there, and uh, that's my rather awkward uh, and rather lazy segue into uh, into introducing introducing today's guest we have none other than uh mr namazaki himself uh namazaki paul with us uh tuning in all the way from portland oregon in the states paul thank you so much for joining us uh for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with um the work that you do uh with uh, namazaki paul could you uh, start off by giving us a little introduction welcome to the show well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. And I've talked to you, Chris, uh, so many times on Clubhouse and had wonderful uh, deep chats about uh, lots of different sake topics. So I'm really excited to actually be on your show today. So thank you all very much. Um, a little bit about myself. So I started as a sake um, 
Maisaki Journey, actually, as a sommelier uh, in a Japanese restaurant, uh, really with a wine background. And I had loved sake, but I didn't know a lot about it. And as I was helping that restaurant develop a program, uh, it was a Kaiseki restaurant that was nominated for a number of awards and things like that. Uh, they The guests really wanted sake. And so I more and more leaned on learning about sake and incorporating sake. And one of the sort of immediate things that I found is that sake is just easier to pair with foods than wine. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. But that really started me on my journey. And then uh, during the pandemic, as the restaurants closed, and I really shifted towards doing retail. And I no longer work as a sommelier at a restaurant. And I've really started this brand called Namazake Paul. And that was a, an online retail brand. And that has just taken off. You know, people were really looking in the pandemic for a new experience, especially in the States. They were looking for a curated experience. They were really missing going to a bar or going to a restaurant and having a bartender help them uh, discover something new. And I was able to sort of replace that and help them learn about sake. So I have a number of people across the US that are coming to sake from other things that sort of weren't uh, sake aficionados five years ago. And so that part is exciting to me that I get to introduce people to sake, to the versatility of it. And, and that's really kind of my mission is that I want people to drink good sake because a lot of times in the US, they drink bad sake. Uh, they have uh, you know very warm, uh, not good food sushu. Uh, you know, cheap at a restaurant, and I want to get them really good stuff, and particularly seasonal things. So I specialize in, of course, namazake, as well as hiyoroshi, natsu, um, really kind of exciting seasonal things. So that's a bit of a background about me. Uh, are you are you doing namazake only, or is that like just your brand name? Uh, not exclusively namazake. Uh, you know, if people want other things, I I let them have it, <laughs> so to speak. Um, right now, because I'm working on this exciting Advent calendar project, uh, and then it's also Hiaroshi season right now. Um, I've really focused on those things, and I, I've uh, tried not to push uh, the uh, fully pasteurized. Uh, sakes as well as sort of individual bottles. I'm really trying to focus on on more uh, packages of, of products. Mm -hmm. what, what's it, what's this uh, Advent calendar? Yeah, so the Advent calendar is this exciting project. Um, I don't know if you remember, but last year on an episode, you had mentioned, you know, why doesn't somebody do an Advent calendar? Yeah, yeah, and... yeah. Yep, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> was was that our that was our Christmas uh, Christmassy episode, wasn't it? I think one of our our, our Christmas special. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I learned why somebody might not do an advent calendar. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so a couple things. First of all, uh, it, the concept isn't really in Japan of advent calendars, and they're they're. I don't I don't know if you've seen that, but but there just isn't the sort of culture around it like there might be in germany uh for example or in the u.s no so that's number no, one mm, yeah and, and i even thought about this because i was uh for um sake day i actually was in san francisco and got to meet a number of brewers and i was talking to them about uh advent calendars and we couldn't even find a good translation and we we thought maybe if, if this existed in japan we'd call it the christmas surprise calendar mm. <laughs> um so the other things that I found out is that in the U.S., there aren't that many great one cups. So I, because of regulations and things, I can't bottle this myself. Um, so I wanted to do one cups, which I thought would be a perfect thing to do. But in the U.S., you'd need 23 one cups. Well, now you're starting to dig deep into the mm. Ozeki Nagori category. <laughs> um, and that just isn't that exciting for folks. And so I tried this last year. I tried kind of a beta version and I learned a number of things. One of them is that we just needed more cups in the US. 
And so what I did was I worked with Japan Prestige, which is a trade organization in Japan, as well as uh, an importer into the U.S. And we brought in 14 brand new cups to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I was able to bring in not just Anjozo and Junmai, but also Ginjo, Dai Ginjo. I've got two different Karakuchi. I've got three Yamahai. I've got two Kimoto. Uh, so that part is really fun. And of course, as, as you all know, the cups themselves are, are often beautiful. They've got uh, painted art on them or stamped art. Uh, sometimes they're labels uh, that are paper, but they're always uh, kind of interesting. And, and sometimes they look just like a bottle label. Uh, so that, that part is, is kind of exciting to have a really wide range sort of again back to this mission of I want people to try lots of different types of sake not just focus on I only drink daiginjo or I, I've only had bad sake at a restaurant or something like that so there's 23 different uh, one cups and then there's one big uh, 720 in the middle and then I also put together this really fun uh, tasting booklet with a friend of mine from 33 books and he does these uh, little books that are kind of journals where you can put in your um, your tasting notes in them with a little rubric. But then on the other side of the page, for each day, it has the day that you're drinking the sake, what the brewery is, some background, where the brewery is in Japan. And then if you like that sake, another suggestion for uh, another one to try. So if you don't cheat, if you don't flip ahead, then you won't know what the next day's sake is. So it really will be a Christmas uh, calendar mm. surprise. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, that's so cool. I'll, uh, perhaps uh, you'll have to release a version where behind each window is a photograph of a brewer wearing a Santa hat or uh, celebrating Christmas <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I actually, just in the development of things, um, yeah. I wound up with this tasting booklet because I wanted to give people notes and I was going to put them behind each door, but the printing of putting something behind a door and also printing something on the front art was a little bit too difficult. Mm. So that's why I wound up with this tasting booklet. But in retrospect, I'm more excited about having this tasting booklet because somebody's probably going to recycle this giant box. It's 23 pounds and it, you know, it's just enormous, right? Somebody's going to recycle mm. that. But uh, they could keep this book uh, for future reference. Mm. I have a question because... Yeah. Um, the design of the art on your advent calendar um, actually draws from cute Japanese characters in a way, um, uh, something that appeals to all public. Well, while we know that alcohol is only consumed after uh, when you're only twenty, when you're twenty years old, I, I suppose that you started from a blank page. Um, what sort of art am I, am I going to put on that advent calendar? Why, why did you choose that direction rather than, I don't know, pictures of a brewery or um, what was the process that led you to choosing two Japanese characters? Well, I, for, I, first of all, I wanted it to be fun and a little bit whimsical. So I think that was sort of primary. And then I, as, as we talked about, I, I like to focus on seasonality. Uh, I think that's one of the fascinating things about sake. Uh, that we don't get really in in many other beverages. Um, so one of my favorite breweries is the Orokoyama that's in Hokkaido. Mm-hmm. And on their seasonal labels, they often have animals. So in their uh, spring um, namazake, they have a polar bear. And on their natsu, they have a penguin. And on their hiyoroshi, they have seals. Mm. And so that kind of started my inspiration. And I worked with a friend of mine, uh, Kayla Swanson, who's a who's a graphic artist. And I gave her those labels. And I said, obviously, we can't copy their labels. But what if we incorporated those types of characters? And that's how we wound up with uh, some of these some of these characters. And particularly this polar bear, uh, I've sort of now adopted as part of my brand. And this polar bear is, is kind of almost a Winnie the Pooh character, if you will, that he uh, sort of gets himself into um, little adventures due to his uh, sake consumption. Mm, <laughs> interesting. 
I mean, okay. Besides that product that you have that you are selling at the moment, which is seasonal, yeah. well, what what other tools have you have you developed to uh, drag people into into your world into the world of of Namazake? Yeah, I, it's been really interesting because I've never started a business before, um, and I've I've sort of taken the attitude of I'm just going to try everything. So I've found uh, that a number of different social media have been really good to connect people. Because sake in the US is such a niche thing, you can't just put up a billboard and say, hey, come come drink sake, or uh, that would be just really hard because there's just less than 1% of the people in the US that drink sake, unlike obviously in Japan. Um, so finding people on Reddit or on Discord, or Facebook or Instagram, all of those types of social media have been really helpful in terms of finding the, the right people. And even when you find somebody that's interested in sake, they're not all of a sudden gonna say, oh, please tell me about your Hiao Roshi, right? Because that's even farther niche than, uh, than just being interested in sake. So part of it is finding people that are open and then it's about an education process. So one of the neat things that I did during the pandemic is doing some online brewery tours. And there was a number of folks that that did this sort of thing. Uh, but I really tried to connect uh, deeply with these breweries, as well as send people the actual sake ahead of time. So if we're going to talk to a particular brewery, then we could actually taste that specific sake with the brewery and talk about uh, the styles and what they're, why did they choose this rice? Why did they choose this uh, yeast? Those types of things. So the number of the ways that I've been able to kind of connect mm -hmm. with people. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I, I mean, I love the, the execution of the advent calendar. I think that's, that's uh, fantastic. And the way that you're um, bringing people into the sake fold over there in Portland, um, just ticks all the right boxes, I think. And actually, I, I, I wanted to kind of, um, we normally ask this quite a bit earlier on, but, um, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's never any kind of uh, bad time to sort of delve into your history a little bit, into your story and, and kind of how did you, how did you get into sake? What, what, what kind of uh, lit the, what, what was the spark that brought you into the world of sake? Did anyone inspire you or... How, had you ever been to Japan before you discovered sake? Tell us I more. hadn't. Yeah, I hadn't. So Portland, Oregon actually has a really strong, first of all, it's got a very strong food scene. And we have a, a wine region that's just an hour away from Portland. So we have a history of, of wine and food. Uh, but I had a favorite uh, little izakaya called Tanuki. And they had an amazing sake selection. So the first sort of aha moment I had was with a, a brand, um, Watare Bune, that mm. um, is sort of a, a classic in the US. It's, it's very popular. It, it may even be the most popular sake in Portland, actually, um, because of Marcus Pekizer, who's a sake samurai and, and a big proponent. And then of course, um, Jodo, sake uh, in the US who's who brings that in and and who was uh, really a big proponent of the brewery. So that was my first aha moment. Um, and then uh, a friend of mine, um, who's also from Portland, Gordon Heady, uh, introduced me to a namazake from a brewery um, farther south, uh, Naruto Tai. And that's a, that was a Genjo Genshu. Fantastic brewery, fantastic brand. Indeed, indeed. And the first time I tried a namazake and it was a Genshu, it just just absolutely blew my mind. And so those two moments really crystallized to me that that sake is exciting and interesting. But then I would say sake is such an evolving thing. Every time I taste something new or I haven't tasted before, or I go back to an old friend and I pair it in a new way. I'm learning something. And I feel like it's one of the things I really love about sake versus the wine culture in the US is that 
so often in wine culture, we say things like, uh, you know, these these are the pairings that work, and we have to sort of stick to those things, or we get sort of a macho uh, attitude that says, I know everything about it, and let me show off what I know. And for me, sake is a journey. We're always trying to explore different styles and different approaches. And, and right now it's so exciting because there's so many new things going on. Uh, one of my favorite breweries uh, up in Akita is Hiraizumi, and they're a very old brewery. In fact, one of the oldest, I think the fourth, fifth oldest brewery, but they're doing things with brand new yeasts like yeast 77, and they're pushing the boundaries of of uh, of modern sake in a in a really exciting way. So that to me is is so much fun that there's that there's new mm. things going on every day. I'm just curious. Sorry for my ignorance, but I mean, how many types of namazaki can you find in Portland? So a lot of that is because of me. So okay. <laughs> I would say uh, if if the question was four or five years ago. Uh, the answer would probably be 20 or something like that. This year, I have 24 Hia Oroshi alone. Okay. And so I'm, I'm you know, putting that in the, in the Namazaka category because they're Namazume, they're single mm -hmm. pasteurized, um, and I, I think of them as seasonals. Uh, for Anatsu this year, I had about 10. And for uh, Namazake, for spring Namazake, I'll have over 30 and I'll have to edit. Um, mm -hmm. I like to ship things in uh, 12 packs. So I'll probably edit down to uh, 24 of my favorites for the year. But Japan Prestige has been has been a big partner of mine uh, for sure in that because they've uh, they've got a really great stable of breweries and they're they're pushing each of them to do these seasonal uh, products and and bringing in those. Hmm. Uh, earlier on, you you mentioned about Portland and its mm. its food culture. Um, I mean, you you worked in you worked as a sommelier in a, in a local restaurant and look, looking at pairing. Why is that that Portland has such a food culture and such a reputation actually uh, as a as a destination for for food lovers? I think there's a number of things. One of them is that we've got really great growing conditions. Um, there's really not great soil. There's uh, warm, uh, long summers. There's lots of rain in the in the fall and in the winter and the spring. So you've got uh, the water table is is particularly full so they can survive the the warm summers. So you've got great growing conditions. You've got access to some seafood as well being on the coast. And then you've got this uh, great wine culture as well. So those things create a, a nice recipe, but then it's also the cheapest major city on the West Coast. Mm. So because of that, the uh, sort of artists, if you will, can afford to live in Portland as opposed to Seattle or San Francisco, which are significantly more expensive. And so because of that, over the last 10 or 15 years, Portland really became a destination for food tourism. So people came from Seattle, from LA, from New York even, and they'd come for the weekend. In fact, when I was working at the restaurant, oftentimes people would come for Friday or Saturday, uh, and then they go back home on Sunday, to, even to New York. They just come for the long weekend. And I'd ask them, what are you doing? And they'd have a list of, well, I'm going to this place for breakfast and then this place at lunch and then this place in the afternoon and then I'm going to dinner and then I'm going to drinks and have just a packed weekend of, uh, of food. And so the pandemic was very hard on Portland. Uh, we uh, were more conservative than any other city in the country and that caused many, many, many restaurants to shut down and still restaurants are having a difficult time, but uh, they're starting starting to look up and starting to look better and, and maybe back to our former selves in within the next year, I hope. Good to hear. What What is the go-to dish in uh, in Portland and that you like to pair with sake? Do you have one? Uh, so Portland is actually known as a pizza city. 
Um, oh. I, I like to kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I like to think of uh, Portland as as a, a town that while we have some fancy food, I would say a lot of the things that we do well are more sort of classic American foods, burgers, uh, pizzas, things like that. Uh, there are some restaurants that really up them or really kind of put a spin on them uh, that that are kind of fun, adding Ofal or other types of things. Uh, but my favorite pairing, I would say, is is pizza. And I love the canvas of pizza. We can pair, uh, you know, think about a pizza as I can put leftovers on a pizza. I can put uh, all sorts of toppings. So, so I can really put anything on it. And it also sort of fits my mission of wanting people to have an open bottle of sake or four in their refrigerator at all times. And so often people think, oh, well, I opened this bottle. I have to finish it today. I said, that's not true. That's not even true with namasake. You can have four bottles of namasake in your fridge and you have a, uh, a Junmai and a Ginjo and a Kimoto uh, Karakuchi and follow their journey over the course of a few days or a few weeks and see how the different foods you eat pair with them. Because this ginjo that you have open might be good with the pineapple and ham pizza that you're having, or it might not. And so you put it back in and you try it with tomorrow's food. And because of that, I, I really want people to, to try those with the things that they normally eat. And I would say most Americans are eating pizza at least once a week, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe once every two weeks. But it is a, a common staple. Uh, whether they're ordering it or they're making it themselves, uh, it's a common staple. And so I think that's an easy entry point to prove to people you should be having sake regularly with all the different types of foods that you eat. Mm. Personally, when I'm tasting, I've gotten into this habit of the last year or so where I don't think I can drink sake without having cheese and charcuterie. And I don't think I can have cheese and charcuterie without having sake. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you there. I whenever I get a glass of sake, I want to have some, yeah, cheese or some some ham or something. I love the pizza idea, and I actually I thought you know what a cool way of getting people to try sake with food is just kind of to to get a pizza and just to stick different toppings on different slices, and then kind of kind of try and put your sake around the pizza and just kind of like play around the sort of you know rotate the sake around the pizza and see what kind of pairs with what slice and. Uh, it's uh, it's music to my ears to hear that uh, pizza well, it's, is. And it's, it's very how, how, how should I say graphic? Like you could uh, yes. yeah. for for events for even for for small events you 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 can you would prepare that. Um, yeah. I have done that actually yeah. for for a, a number of local charities. I've donated uh, sake and pizza pairing events and things like that. And one of the first things I usually do is a quattro stagione which is a, a four seasons pizza, right? And so you've got yeah. those four quadrants of savory, salty things. And I'll do that in a big uh, pan, a big rectangular pan and cut them up small. And so while I'm making pizzas in the wood-fired pizza oven, I can have people uh, sort of pick their own uh, pairings. Ah, that's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. Okay, Sebastian, we have to do a quattro stagioni and sake mm -hmm. pairing event here in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. Such a cool mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. Yeah. Are, 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 is is Tokyo yet into the uh, the square pizzas uh, or the pan pizzas? I, I haven't seen many pictures. Um, Almost all the time when I see pizza, I see Neapolitan style in Tokyo. Yeah, um, I, I would say um, Neapolitan or Napoli style is probably the the most popular here. And then you have like the fast food versions, the American style. I don't think I've ever seen square. Not so, yeah. I think there is such an image associated with pizza that, yeah, I guess clients would be a bit surprised at restaurants if something square comes out of the oven. Yeah. Right, right. There's sort of this platonic ideal of yeah. what pizza must be, and if it doesn't look like that, then, then it's, it's not pizza. It's, it's not authentic. Oh, hang on. I did have a square pizza at a, an event actually with sake. Uh, they they made a special pizza um, with uh, sake kasu. And then they put cheese on top. Uh, so they made kind of like the dough using sakikasu. And then they put cheese on top. And it was square. They were square pieces. So oh, um, I, have I have not put kazu in the dough. I have done kazu as a sauce. 
Yeah. But, uh, but not as in the dough. Do you find Sekekasu in Portland as well? I do. There's actually a huge brewery. The biggest brewery in the U.S., uh, Sake One, is uh, just not too far away from me, about 45 mm -hmm. minutes. And so I've got plenty of kazu. Uh, I love um, kazuzuke, uh, salmon cured in, in kazu, uh, or turnips uh, in, you know, in, in, in kazu. So I, I use it a lot. Do, actually, do the... Um, and I'm sorry again for my ignorance, and well, American listeners will uh, hopefully forgive me, but do... I mean, the large U.S. breweries release Namazake as well. And what about the smaller craft breweries? Yeah, so this is a kind of a really interesting question because there's one, well, I, I, take, oh, I take that back. There isn't just, so there's Sake One, and then there's uh, a, a couple of other uh, uh type of type of places. So there are some huge American breweries that, are, that specialize in really making volume. Uh, is the best way to think about that. And they do some namachozo, uh, but they're not doing seasonal craft things. Uh, sake One does make what I consider to be one of the best uh, uh, domestic sakes. It's called Naginata, and mm -hmm. it's a Jumai Daiginjo that's made with uh, American-grown Yamada Nashiki, polished to 40%, uh, and it's a really, really fantastic sake. Um, Next time I go to Japan, I'm going to be bringing bottles to to share with folks. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to try that myself. So that's kind of fun. But there's also this craft sake scene, which has just exploded in the last two years. And these are, many of them are doing namazake. Uh, some of them are selling it so fast that it, it they just don't even have time to sort of go through the pasteurization process. Um, they're just selling it right out of their tap room. And this is really sort of piggybacking on the beer culture and they're introducing new people to sake. So not only are they doing a lot of unpasteurized things, but they're also doing a lot of infused sakes. And this is again, sort of focused on introducing new people to sake. So I've got a friend in New England who's doing a uh, maple water infused sake, who's got blueberries in his sake. Uh, they, there's a, a guy in San Diego that's doing hibiscus infused things. Uh, so if, if a Japanese person were to, were to come and taste them, they would say, oh, this is very interesting. <laughs> I <laughs> wouldn't know as though you would... You know, recognize this is it's, it's sort of halfway between uh, maybe beer and and sake. But the exciting part is they're getting new people in, and and that's wonderful. Yeah, I and I I, f I fully understand that. And I think Chris, we we have to do an episode about such uh, craft sake in Japan yeah, as well. Sure, I think it's, sure. it's taking it's taking root as well. The craft sake association is is um, is because they have constraints on the type of products they can sell on the domestic market. Uh, they are releasing other types of products, so they can't release Nihonshu, so they release Doguroku, with an introduce, and are introducing lots of variations, including infusions and, uh, and uh, adding, adding, I mean, using hop, hop, as you said. And, and my own personal experience is bringing people to uh, these products or to these shops and breweries and and really finding out that that uh, yeah I mean it it just surprises people and it gets them interested. So, oh, I I, th I think it's super exciting, Sebastian, because this is hopefully bringing in a younger younger demographic in Japan, uh, but it poses a little bit of an interesting uh, issue for export because if you export a craft thing that may be just a one off then you have to go through uh, all this process when you import something into the US. You have to get the label approved by the government and you have to you know, presumably have a market to sell this thing. Uh, and so you're taking on a risk. So in the past, uh, the things that have been imported tend to be focused on very consistent brands that has a market that has a restaurant that's going to buy them that needs it on their list every week and has stock of it and and you've got sort of a steady flow of things and because of that there are particular brands that are just uh, sort of consistent across the us so there's some constraints on on exporting or importing this this craft sake movement but 
I want to give it a go. I th it's it's just very very exciting. Yeah, we did actually talk about the association uh, in one of our uh, last episodes, but we do need to do a kind of a full on deep dive into that. I agree. But your your um, point is uh, was was excellent for about about the. The, the challenges that it raises when it comes to exports but um mm. yeah i mean as you as you know uh, there is so much uh, gross potential on the domestic market in japan for these uh, for these breweries from from, from yeah. now mm. and actually it's a good segue because i was gonna my next question actually for you paul was about importing namazaki because this is this has got to be a question um that's going to come up in the minds of anyone listening to this show how on earth do you import these namazaki to the us there must be a lot of hurdles you have to overcome. And how has the challenge kind of got easier over time? And, and what strategies have you employed to kind of make the challenge easier? And are, is it still a challenge? Is it now kind of a piece of cake to import Namazaki into the US? And what kind of quality does it, what kind of state does it arrive in? Yeah, so th there have been challenges, uh, particularly during the pandemic. Um, so refrigerated containers are not that hard uh, to, to come by uh, normally, <laughs> uh, but the costs went up dramatically. Um, and and I'll, I'll just uh, quote you some some things in dollars, but uh, costs for a refrigerated 40 foot container went from $3,000 to $13,000 uh, down to, uh, you know, they started to come back down. Uh, you know, maybe still over over ten, but but uh, I I think that they'll come down to to five or six. So that that has been quite an arc. So you can get the refrigerated containers, uh, not terribly difficult, uh, but then you need refrigerated trucking um, to get that from a major port um, to wherever your warehouse is, and then the sort of last uh, bit of it is to get it into the the customer's hands. And so you need to have uh, some sort of refrigerated uh, gel packs or things like that in an insulated uh, packaging. Um, but all of that hasn't been hasn't been too hard. Um, and so I've been able to create that niche because no one else has really done that before uh, and really focused on it. So that that has been. I mean, almost all Namazake in you know four or five years ago was going to restaurants. Uh, retail did not have the right places to store it. Uh, most wine shops, which would be your target market, don't have refrigeration, uh, and and if they did, they'd be putting bottles to for a, a you know champagne or something like that in them. And most beer stores aren't really going to be your typical market for sake drinkers. So th there just wasn't the sort of retail refrigeration that was needed and supply chain on on that side. So. It, it really not okay was was at restaurants yeah so you're aiming for the premium like you you obviously you 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 have to charge quite a premium for so these namazaki because it costs so much yeah. to bring them in right so you're aiming for like the fine dining the 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 places where perhaps people would normally be drinking quite expensive wines perhaps that that's exactly true and, and that is a big difference between japan and and the um and the us um you know, where where something that um, you know might might be nine thousand yen or something like that. Uh, you know, the it's going to be double or almost triple that in, by the time it it hits the the US. Uh, we can make a simple calculation. I mean, on top of your head, how many bottles? I'm talking about seven twenties. Can you put in a forty feet container? <laughs> um, so you can put about a hundred thousand. Hundred thousand. So it means if you pay thirteen thousand dollars just for the container, um, you've got about um, it's a it's a it's less than a dollar. It's about it's a bit less than a dollar. For yeah, yeah. You're you're winding up with about a dollar. You know, the the you know worst of the pandemic. You know, maybe you're maybe you're paying two dollars a bottle, um, and that's that's just for the the. The container, right? And then mm, you've got right, to get it trucked course. from the port to wherever your warehouse is. You've got to store it in a warehouse. There's there's a number of costs involved. Well, there's taxes involved, right? So so all of those things, uh, and then of course you need to keep yourself in business <laughs> uh, as well. What how what was the initial reaction like when you first approached the brewers and you said, you know, I I I mean I. 
I can imagine when you first kind of visited the brewers in their mind, they were like, okay, he's going to take the Jim Mai. He's going to take the Jim Mai Daiginjo. He's maybe going to take a Nigori Zaki or something, but it might not have entered their, you know, imagination that you would ask them for the Namazaki. Did you, did you get any kind of interesting reactions in the early days from the brewers when you, when you went to them and you said, give me a Namazaki. I want to, I want to, I want to import your Namazaki into the U S. <laughs> You know, it, that that part is interesting. They they just didn't expect to to for me to want so many of them and so many different <laughs> ones of, of of the Namazaki. Right? They say, "Oh, well, you've already got you know these sort of things." And and the the other piece that that I would say they didn't expect is the Yamaha and the Kimoto, because as you say, there's there's sort of this expectation is that the American market is just going to want Daiginjo, right? And and there's certainly those people. There's certainly those people that come to me and they say, "I just." That's all I drink. I only drink uh, Jumai Daigenjo. And I said, well, what oh, about Anjozo Daigenjo? Would you drink that? Well, uh, you could start the discussion, right? Yeah. But but I I love Yamaha and Kimoto. Uh, those are some of my favorites. Oh, yeah. And of course, they're wonderful for pairing with foods. And now we we have a number of, uh, of seasonal uh, Yamaha and Kimoto as well. Yamaha Hiroshi is absolutely amazing. It's not oh. so easy to find. There aren't many breweries that will release a Yamaha Hiroshi, but it's it's quite something if you can. If you can one of my it. one of my absolute favorites is uh, Kisoji uh, oh, in yeah. Nagano. Yeah, and mm -hmm. absolutely blew me away. Uh, it was the last year, or the year before, and uh, it just landed uh, yesterday. So I'm super excited to uh, to taste oh, it today. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And how is the understanding around namazaki because you know um how how kind of when you introduce namazaki how do you introduce it is it sort of like super fresh sake is it kind of like sake when it's really young and it's not quite you know reached maturity or you just kind of rather than compare with wine you just say it's unique it's it's just something you got to try you know it needs no explanation just try it and kind of what what's your what's your spiel when you when you meet someone who's never had namazaki before how do you how do you introduce it to them well, that's an interesting question because a couple of the examples you brought up are things that I don't normally say. Uh, so, for example, I don't normally say that this is young, or that uh, you know that this is. Uh, I don't know. That might that might um, have them just think about it in a little bit different way. So maybe I will say that in the future. No, but, I, I well, wasn't suggesting that that you should yeah. actually necessarily, but I was just wondering. In my yeah, mind, those are the how kind I of approach the, it. Yeah, yeah, the obvious things, perhaps to say, but I, I know that you're. So, not, so the, I, I would say that the first thing Maverick. I do is <laughs> that I created a little blue sticker that I put on the top of the bottle cap that uh, mimics uh, the blue sticker that you sometimes see on the neck of a of a bottle in Japan that says, you know, Namazake, and I put instructions refrigerate uh you know 26 f to uh you know to 38 f uh on the uh on the on it so the first thing i do is just educate about storage um and then i i like to really focus on the seasonality is is really how i discuss it and i i tell people that you want to drink this within six months uh maybe longer if it's not a ginjo and store it in the fridge and this is how how long uh, you can keep this open once you've opened it, and and so that's how I really sort of think about the education. As I start with the storage, and when to drink it, how 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 to drink it, those types of things, and the the other piece of it is I, I tell them not to collect it, and I, I don't let people buy more than uh, twelve bottles at a time. And I don't let them buy more than three of the same thing at, at one time because I want them to try different things and I don't want it to sit around and get stale. So I say, buy 12. And when you're down to three, call me again and we'll, we'll restock you. So I really want them sort of trying a new thing every time. And, and that sort of fits into the seasonality and it fits into my mission of, of having them try lots of different styles. You just keep it simple, basically. Just, you know, this is- Yeah, I keep it very simple. You know, don't think too it's much seasonal. about it. It's seasonal. Yeah, it's seasonal and and um, keep it in the fridge. And what I found is that because most people started their sake journey with warm futsushu at a restaurant, and then maybe they get into, uh, they go straight to Daiginjo. And so the, they have these two reference points. 
when they try Namazake for themselves the first time, it, they're blown away. They have this just huge aha moment. And I let them discover that themselves. I don't need to, to tell them what to think about that or how to how to do. I mean, they'll, they'll immediately see the the huge difference between a very nicely made uh, Daiginjo, warm Futsushu and Namazake. They're, they're just on different planes. I mean, that's interesting. You 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 said you you send about twelve bottles. I mean, for in Japan, uh, at least. I mean, I wouldn't be able to put twelve bottles in my fridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. American fridges for sure, uh, and and you know, many Americans have two fridges. They have one in the garage, and they have one in the in the house. I, I confess to have two sake fridges, and I I. Without them, I mean, Namazaki just wouldn't be an option because, you know, yeah. as you quite rightly say, Sebastian, Japanese fridges just, just, they just don't, you know, there's no room for food. Mm. Never mind, never mind. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I was, I wanted to ask you all because of the, 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 you know, this, this, uh, little issue I had at the sort of the beginning of putting together this calendar about mm. one cups and trying to get enough one cups and enough variation of one cups. I was going to ask you just in the last couple of years, have you seen uh, more one cups? How, how's that, how's that culture in, in, uh, in Japan right now? Well, I'm actually involved with, uh, well, I'm not, well, not involved, but I'm, I'm good friends with a guy who actually um, just created um, the kind of the, the modern, uh, version of the one cup, if you like, uh, kind of like cans basically, um, with, with sake in, and they look really cool. Um, but actually also, uh, you know, a lot of breweries have started to release, um, a more kind of a bigger range of sake in the one cup format. It's definitely, you definitely see more choice when it comes to one cups. Um, but I would say rather than one cups, I would say there's a massive, um, trend in aluminium cans at the moment. A lot of breweries mm. are releasing aluminium cans. The the brewery I work for um, just released an aluminium can and it's selling quite well um, in Tokyo. Um, they don't actually do any one cups as far as I know, as far as I know. Um, but of course the big breweries, the breweries like the Gekkei can and Ozeki, you know, Ozeki of course, I think their one cup is, is, is famous around the world, right? One of the first one cups I think ever um, to be to be released, something to do with a ba baseball. Oh, that's so cool! Uh, so Paul is showing us here. He's, he's he's opened up his advent calendar. So we've just seen behind each door. Um, <laughs> yeah. No cheating. No sure. No cheating. Uh, but we won't we won't spoil the surprise on air for you because. But you were mentioning um, the uh, the cans and 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 December first, everyone will get uh, will get a little. Oh can. wow! Oh wow! So that's kind of fun, and it's and it's the lightest of them. You know the the glass, of course. You know the classic right. glass ones are uh, are quite heavy, right? They're, they're much um, lighter. The cans. That's the kind of I think the appeal of them. And of course, right now the argument tends to be that that aluminium is better for recycling, better for the environment than glass, right? Although there's no kind of black and white there. It, it I think there's a bit of a gray, a gray area. It's a little bit more complicated than they, you know, it sort of seems on the surface. But um with and, and because of, because Americans aren't drinking uh, one cups all the time. I mean, for right. for many people, this would be the, the when they get this calendar, this will be the first time they've ever had one cups. Um, sure. They might actually save most of these and yeah. use them, uh, reuse them, which of course is, is much lower uh, environmental load than recycling. So, no one's going to go through twenty three one cups in one go, right? I mean, that, that's 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 quite a that's quite a, one cup well, every day. <laughs> well, the, uh, you can certainly share with a partner. Um, and so, you know, now you're having, you know, half a glass a day, um, yeah, yeah. but, but the, the hope is that everybody will actually go, will, will drink or open it on, on that day because everyone gets the same sake every day. Right. And so then they'll be able to go online and they'll be able to use the sake sure. calendar hashtag. And I've got a little Facebook page uh, that I'm setting up for it so they can interact with each other and say, Oh, I really like this one. Oh, this one wasn't my favorite, that sort of thing. Okay. So we'll, we'll put up on the sake on air um, page for this, this, this episode and also on our social media, everyone, you know, go out and buy the calendar. And when you do get the calendar, when you're when you're opening your window, when you've opened your window and you've got your cup sake, 
make sure that you put something on social media with uh, well instagram we're talking about right with the hashtag uh Saki yeah. calendar yeah awesome Sebastian, you which is fun, and and it's so funny that like I mean, just to prove that this has never been done before, right? There's yeah. you 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 look at hashtag socket calendar or socket advent calendar, just gonna and be there's, yeah. There's only my posts. <laughs> yeah, we were pretty sure when we when we put the gauntlet down last last uh, year in that episode <laughs> that there wasn't already an a socket advent calendar. I think there's a few like Japanese kind of like um, not advent calendars as such, but sort of like you know, like boxes with lots of different one cups in, but, but like you said, sure, the like a sampler is, pack. Yeah, yeah, like a sampler pack. But like you said, the advent calendar is, is, is most definitely not a Japanese cultural tradition. So um, it's, in, it could, you should definitely export it to Japan. I, I think that could I, be want some interest. I want to, I want to, I had a discussion uh, with a, with a friend of mine in Japan about it. Uh, and it seems like something that we could get into Costco and, and they would. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think there should be some, they'd interest. love to sell. Excellent. I mean, that was really interesting. Yeah. So thank you very much, Paul. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful uh, learning more about the um, sake scene in the US, in particular, uh, Portland, Oregon, and just the wonderful work that you're doing. And um, I actually look for, I want to try and get my hands on this advent calendar myself. It looks really cool. <laughs> and uh, Thank you so thank much. You. What a fun experience to, to come chat with you all. Uh, it's been, all oh, the pleasure has been ours, I assure you. And uh, thank you, Sebastian. Thank you, Chris. Always a pleasure. Yes, likewise. And uh, that's uh, whet my appetite to go and get some some namazaki. Um, so I think that'll do it for this episode of Saki on Air. Uh, please take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be enjoying the show on. And feel free to send your questions and comments to questions at sakionair.com or at sakionair on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You'll also find us over on YouTube as well. We'll be back with more Sakionair very shortly. Until then, thank you everyone. Kanpai. Kanpai. Sakionair has been made possible with the generous support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center located in the heart of Tokyo. The show is brought to you by Potsuke Production with audio production by Mr. Frank Walter.